In all areas, the UK continues to backtrack. The European Union argues that, that we, be, we should be subject to rules of the club that we have left. The precondition is the level playing field. Uh, we can deliver a real Brexit that achieves our objectives. But if there is not a deal, we still need the Irish Protocol or the Northern Irish Protocol fully implemented. I'm going to miss being the pantomime villain. Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's podcast on Brexit. I'm Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe editor in Brussels. I'm Sean Whelan, RTE's London correspondent in Westminster. And I'm Colm O'Mungoyne, RTE's deputy foreign editor, normally in Dublin, but currently at home in Kildare. Each week, Brexit Republic assesses all the latest Brexit developments in Brussels, London and in Dublin. This week, the fallout from Boris Johnson's internal market bill deepens with a growing rebellion in the House of Commons. Fury in Brussels at Johnson's apparent suggestion that the EU was threatening to starve Northern Ireland and a frosty welcome in America for the Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab. Undeterred, the Prime Minister is pressing ahead with the bill, but with an attempt to buy off rebels who are increasingly concerned that it breaches international law. We'll assess what Johnson has in mind and we'll look more closely at those claims that the EU could impose some kind of food blockade on Northern Ireland. Tony, to you first... Where did they originate and how have they gone down in Brussels? This issue first came up when Boris Johnson wrote a piece for the Daily Telegraph, which appeared last Saturday morning, saying that the EU was threatening to have an irrational interpretation or extreme interpretation of the Northern Ireland Protocol and was in effect threatening to prevent food going from Great Britain to Northern Ireland. Now, the origin of this is that in the future trade negotiations, the EU wants to know what kind of food safety regime the UK operates. And they've been asking the UK for details of the legislation that it's going to bring in from the 1st of January on what kind of sanitary and phytosanitary rule book it's going to have, SPS as we call it. And it appears that the UK has been hesitant in providing that kind of detail. And that's kind of escalated into what you might describe as a sort of a minor irritant in those trade negotiations. But at a certain point, after the internal market bill was introduced and after all the hue and cry about it, Boris Johnson suddenly escalated things by saying that the EU was threatening a food blockade. On paper, yes, if the EU doesn't list the UK as a safe third country from which to import food, then that would mean... Northern Ireland would not be able to import food from Great Britain because it's operating in the single market. Of course, the EU is saying there's no way we're not going to give the UK a third country listing, but we just want the UK to give us the legislation first. The UK in turn sees this as the EU kind of holding it over the UK's heads keeping it there as a bit of a hardball tactic and making the UK sweat. The EU in turn thinks that the UK doesn't really want to come forward with an explicit declaration of its food safety regime from the 1st of January because the UK doesn't want to alienate Donald Trump, who of course wants to get American farmers' produce to UK tables and supermarkets. Right. So it suddenly blew up into a, a huge international argument with the Americans weighing in with Joe Biden this week, the Democratic candidate. And 
obviously in Dublin and the EU, absolute fury, not just at the internal market bill itself, but the way Boris Johnson has been framing his justification for the internal market bill by suggesting that somehow the the EU was going to have a food blockade of Northern Ireland. And given Irish history, you can see why a lot of hackles were raised there. Surely. And Sean, the internal markets bill, if it was being marketed as a solution to the great food blockade of Northern Ireland, that was the very issue on which Boris Johnson came a cropper at the dispatch box during Prime Minister's questions under questioning from Ed Miliband, the former Labour Party leader. Now, if the Prime Minister wants to tell us that there's another part of this bill that I haven't noticed that will deal with this supposed threat of the blockade, he can, I'll give way to him, I'll very happily give way to him and tell me, he can tell us, I'm sure he's read it, I'm sure he knows it, I'm sure he knows it in detail because he's a details man. Uh, uh, Come on, come on, tell us what, what, what clause what clause protects the threat that he says he's worried about, about uh, GB to Northern Ireland exports? I give way to him. Well, the right honourable gentleman can't give way unless he's asked to. There you have it. He didn't read the protocol. He hasn't read the bill. He doesn't know his stuff. Well, Ed Miliband had the, the time of his life standing in for the leader of the Labour Party, Keir Starmer, who uh, was laid low by a possible COVID risk in his own house and went uh, looking for a test like so many other people in this country this week. Uh, he was out of action. Ed Miliband stepped in and delivered an absolutely astounding parliamentary performance. People who've been covering his career for years say they've never seen anything like it. Boris Johnson was unfortunate enough to be on the receiving end of it and was forensically demolished, principally on the point, as you point out, that in terms of food imports from GB to NI, this internal markets bill is absolutely silent on the issue. It doesn't address it in any way, let alone solve any potential threat of an EU blockade. And behind the scenes, government people have been saying, well, yeah, sort of, um, we can deal with it in the finance bill after the budget. But Mr. Johnson had gone out just a few minutes beforehand in launching this bill in the House of Commons, all guns blazing, saying, there's a, a, an appalling threat from the EU to effectively blockade one part of the United Kingdom away from the other part, splitting the country, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, and we need this bill to face off this threat. It was then immediately demonstrated to him what other people had been saying as well, that there's nothing in this bill that would actually do that at all. And Mr. Johnson looked pretty crestfallen throughout the humiliating attacks that were piled on him by Mr. Miliband. Indeed, the sketch writer from the Daily Telegraph said Boris had been duffed up by the school SWAT, leaving all the Tory backbenchers looking pretty glum. Not, of course, that there weren't that many Tory backbenchers to look glum. Again, we mentioned this a number of times, but in this COVID-restricted House of Commons, you just don't get the massed ranks of people packing in to cheer and jeer and roar and shout at each other the type of atmosphere in which Boris Johnson thrives, that atmosphere is dead now. It's more like a courtroom. And if somebody comes at him with a forensic attack, it inflicts a lot of damage on him if he doesn't have any defences to what he's uh, advocating. And in this case, he plainly didn't have any defences. Well, of course, about 175 years ago, there was a genuine food supply issue on the island of Ireland, causing many Irish people to leave and go to the United States, where some of their descendants were causing bother for Dominic Rabb, the Foreign Secretary, who was in Washington, D.C. this week. As you said, Tony, on Wednesday, I think it was, Joe Biden tweeted during Dominic Rabb's visit, we can't allow the Good Friday Agreement that brought peace to Northern Ireland to become a casualty of Brexit. 
any trade deal between the US and the UK must be contingent upon respect for the agreement and preventing the return of a hard border, period. Pretty emphatic stuff. Yeah, pretty emphatic stuff. And this was the the row breaking out in, in, on another front for the UK. It seems that the Irish Embassy in Washington had done its homework and had got the key Irish-American Congress people on side to defend the withdrawal agreement and, by extension, the Good Friday Agreement, as they would see it. The only support that Dominic Rabb seemed, seemed to get was from Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, who said that he effectively trusted the UK to do the right thing and to handle the Good Friday Agreement properly. He, he got a, a much frostier response from people like Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, and other prominent politicians in America. Including Richard Neal, the congressman who chairs the Ways and Means Committee, which is one of the gatekeepers for trade agreements in the US. Here's what he had to say to our Washington correspondent, Brian O'Donovan. Was there any contemplation of a return to a hard border between the Republic of Ireland and the North? He said that that was not even a consideration. I did point out that I thought that we had been assured about nine months ago in a protocol that had been signed by the UK government and question the idea of would we be having another meeting about reassurance in the near future. I think we both made our points, uh, but we also, I think, took the time to point out until we are reassured, there can be no bilateral trade agreement between America and the UK if there's any threat to the Good Friday Agreement. A fool me once type sentiment coming from him. Yeah, there was also a response from some Tory Eurosceptics who were really criticising Joe Biden for appearing to lecture the UK. Ian Duncan Smith said that he should look to his own backyard and uh, try and find solutions to stop the rioting on US streets before lecturing what he called um, a sovereign country on the peace process. But then you had this really quite bizarre tweet from John Redwood, a veteran Eurosceptic, who said in the event of the US not giving the UK a trade agreement. That was all well and good. Trade agreements were nice to have, but they were not as important as taking back control of your laws, money and borders. But I think the Tory uh, Eurosceptic response was dampened somewhat when President Trump's own envoy to Northern Ireland, Mick Mulvaney, told the Financial Times that it's very important that a hard border isn't reimposed on the island of Ireland by accident, clearly signalling to Boris Johnson that if the internal market bill perseveres, then that accidental reimposition of the land border could be a reality. Sean, how is this going down in the UK? Because clearly, I mean, the reaction of some of the Tory backbenchers, part of it is, you know, butt out and mind your own business, Mr. Biden. And some of them were openly hoping for uh, Trump to be re-elected. But I mean, is there genuine concern and anxiety indeed about the prospects of this affecting a UK-US trade deal, or is it too early, really, for that to have seriously sunk in at this point? No, I think there is concern about it. I mean, I think Dominic Raab had a very bad time uh, on his trip to Washington. Uh, that uh, news conference that he did with Mike Pompeo, where Pompeo, people over here interpreted it as a giving support to the British, saying, yeah, I'm sure you'll get it all sorted out in the end. It was actually the kind of boilerplate diplomatic niceties that you've seen a million times. Every diplomatic press conference has this kind of anodyne language in it. And if Dominic Raab had responded in kind, as he mostly did, to this question that had been posed by the BBC about this internal markets bill, he could have left it there nice and smooth. But he didn't. He couldn't resist the urge to put the ball through the back of the net and said, 
the real problem here is the EU politicising the Northern Ireland issue. And that was opening a new line of attack just when they had everything sort of sorted out kind of nicely. There was no need to open this line of attack. But he did that goaded other people in Washington, particularly in the uh, congressional meetings. He also said he was looking forward to explaining the issue to Nancy Pelosi when he met her later. Probably not the best choice of language there. In terms of how it went down here in the UK, yes, you were getting a few initial attacks from the more shrill extremes from the Conservative Party and the Brexit movement, such as Brendan O'Neill of Spite, who had uh, written an article headlined Time for Ireland to Grow Up. Ireland is being used by the US and the EU as a weapon to attack Brexit. There's another uh, publication called Reaction, which had published, uh, I think, saying, does Joe Biden understand the Good Friday Agreement? So this kind of stuff was starting to come out, but it didn't make the mainstream media here. In fact, the mainstream media went fairly quiet on this story, having been interested earlier in the week about what various U.S. congressional leaders were thinking. Once they started to come out and make their statements, and it was going very plainly, very badly for Mr. Rabb, a lot of the uh, mainstream media seemed to mysteriously lose interest in this as a prominent story, that uh, Britain was suddenly not being supported. And the other problem that they have, and I think you're seeing the government trying to tack away from these attacks and damp things down, is that it is pushing the Conservative Party into the arms of Trump and his re-election campaign, because if they're seen to be going against Joe Biden, then in a two-horse race, you must be automatically, axiomatically backing Mr. Trump. And so they probably want to put a little bit of distance there between themselves and the Donald Trump movement, because it doesn't necessarily play terribly well with their own supporters, and indeed their own backbenchers as well. So For those two reasons, we've seen a backing off Boris Johnson on Wednesday, a very packed day that Wednesday, incredible amount of things happening, was before the Liaison Committee, a committee he's managed to dodge any appearance at for over a year now. Finally went in there, that's the Committee of Committee Chairs, but he was asked by Mr. Ben, the chair of the EU Future Relationship Committee, about this internal market bill. And there he was fairly emollient saying, well, no, I I don't think we're going to have to use any of these clauses, these controversial lawbreaker clauses, because we want to deal with the EU, the EU want to deal with us. I'm sure we're going to get it sorted out. So that let's get it sorted out line, the one that Pompeo was using, that's the kind of official emollient line they're making. They've seen that this issue of the internal markets bill, those controversial clauses, 42 to 45, have not played well. They have played really, really badly internationally. They are damaging Britain's reputation. The less said about this, the better. Uh, And what Mr. Johnson now needs is an elegant line of retreat from the hill that he's marched his troops up onto to give him the time and space for him and the European Union to find this wonderful agreement that everybody seems to say they want, but nobody has actually quite nailed down yet. Right, but Tony, the EU is not reassured by Boris Johnson's assurances that this will probably never be used, nor are they particularly reassured by Boris Johnson's assurances to Bob Neill, this Conservative MP who is to put forward amendments to the Internal Markets Bill, I think next Tuesday, in which he's been told by central control of the Tory party, or he's been told by Boris Johnson or emissaries on his behalf that, you know, there will be a parliamentary vote before any of these provisions are triggered. For the EU, it's about getting this off the books to re-establish trust. Yeah, exactly, Colm. I mean, the the EU now describes this uh, as a loaded revolver on the table, and it has to be off the table before the UK will get anywhere 
in the either the joint committee where these issues should rightfully be discussed or in the free trade talks. I mean, I think the EU has had to be extremely careful in responding to this. Numerous people I've spoken to have said, look, we don't want to get provoked into a rash decision. We don't want to be the ones who are forced or cornered into pulling the plug on the free trade negotiations, not least because that scenario of a no deal is not going to help Northern Ireland. It'll put things back quite considerably. Right, but they could um, kick it into the long grass with lengthy infringement proceedings, couldn't they? Well, they will. They they keep that in reserve because, according to the EU, this bill already breaches Article Five of the Withdrawal Agreement, which is the good faith article. But they they still are locked into free trade negotiations and the deadline there is the 31st of October. So the the dilemma for the EU is what if this bill gets mired in the House of Lords for for weeks on end, even if it gets through the House of Commons with, with this compromise amendment that Boris Johnson has struck? Can the EU go ahead and clinch some agreement with the UK while this bill is still in the ether hanging over everything? And the feeling is that, no, they they couldn't and they wouldn't. And that if they do manage to bridge the the gaps that remain on level playing field and on fisheries and so on, then they will have to make conclusion of a free trade agreement conditional on the offensive elements of the internal market bill being expunged. Now, what's happened in terms of Boris Johnson's attempts to buy over the rebels is he's said, yes, MPs will have to give their approval if these powers are ever invoked that would override elements of the protocol. And in parallel, he's said that MPs would decide that the EU has been guilty of bad faith. Now, they've spelled out five areas where the EU would be in bad faith, according to Downing Street, such as unfairly putting tariffs on goods coming in from Great Britain to Northern Ireland, unfairly using the state aid reachback clause, which we talked about last week, various other things that the UK are not happy about. But if you go through each of these supposed bad faith measures on the EU side one by one, you see that they're all actually catered for in the in the protocol, in the withdrawal agreement. What this is seen in Brussels as simply Boris Johnson trying to straighten the pathway through the commons. And in no way is it seen as something that is trying to reassure the European Union or, or Ireland. And that's why it, it's even angered people further that what might be perceived as a, an honourable compromise in Westminster is seen as just making things worse and certainly keeping the gun on the table. And of course, there's another gun on the way, and that is in the finance bill, which is going to have, most people expect, will have more provisions in there, which would override the clauses in the Northern Ireland Protocol. Right. Sean, there isn't a pub's chance of this being taken off the table in the UK, is there? I mean, as, as Tony said, it's seen as a, what they're doing now with the promises that a parliamentary vote will be triggered before any of these mm. mechanisms are invoked is, is regarded as reasonable. It's not the first time we've seen sort of a compromise being worked out in the UK Parliament that the EU doesn't see as relevant to its concerns throughout the course of this Brexit agreement. But Sir Ivan Rogers, in an interview with the Irish Times during the week, says he's become convinced, really, that Boris Johnson is actually heading for a no deal out of choice. Yeah, um, that was a very interesting uh, Ivan Rogers interview, as indeed most uh, of Ivan Rogers' interventions uh, in this whole Brexit saga have been very, very interesting and uh, well worth uh, looking at. Um, What is the reason behind this this, uh, internal markets bill, these controversial provisions? I mean, I always regard them as 
a negotiating tactic, an extremely high-risk negotiating tactic to try and break this political logjam, which we've spoken about many times on this podcast, and try and get the EU into a rapid-fire negotiation, to try and get a treaty deal cracked over the next six weeks, which is roughly the period of time that we're looking at for the passage of this bill through into the House of Lords, uh, where it will face a torrid time. Their lordships are not at all happy with this one. But, so, but before it comes back down to the uh, House of Commons for any kind of reconciliation procedure or ping pong, as they call it over here, they would hope that a negotiation would have been concluded with the EU. And so the revolver will be left on the table and then quietly pushed off into a, a waste bin later on when there's no need for it. But they want to be able to say, look, we took decisive action. We pushed them. If we hadn't done this, they wouldn't have budged from their, their positions. Everybody knows the clock is running down and everybody is uh, watching it. But it's, it right. is extremely yeah. difficult in British constitutional politics. I mean, Geoffrey Cox appears to be one of those people, the former attorney general, the guy who lawyered the, the withdrawal agreement and Irish protocol for Boris Johnson. He says this is unconscionable, uh, uh, this internal market bill, and he said it would amount yeah. to nothing more than the unilateral abrogation of the treaty obligations to which we pledged our word less than 12 months ago. That was writing in The Times on Monday. That's it. And and the point that he's still making is it doesn't matter whether you shift the decision-making power from the government minister down to the parliament itself, it's still about breaking the law. And it leaves it in the sticky situation that the Queen would, when it goes for royal assent, she would have to have a hand in international law being broken, which is not a particularly nice position to put her in. And and Cox isn't the only one. I mean, one of the things that slipped pretty much under the radar uh, on Wednesday, because it was such a busy day, was the resignation of Lord Keane, the uh, Advocate General, sorry, Lord Advocate, the um, Chief Law Officer for Scotland. He appears in the House of Lords for Boris Johnson's government in his resignation letter. Uh, and he resigned over this this bill. Uh, there have been rumours that he was deeply unhappy about it, but he eventually went on Wednesday, sent in a letter in the morning. It wasn't accepted until the evening. They tried to make efforts to get him to stay. But his letter said, amongst other things, I have endeavoured to identify a respectable argument for the provisions at clauses 42 to 45, but it's clear this will not now meet your policy intentions. So I'm going to resign. He said, your government faces challenges on a number of fronts, and I fear the UK internal market bill in its present form will not make these any easier. So this was pretty damning stuff from Lord Keane. And uh, there's a lot of speculation about that the government are going to find it hard to get a senior Scottish lawyer to fill that role while this internal market bill is on the table. So again, it's causing problems for the government as if there weren't enough other problems going on for the government, notably to do with COVID and the whole testing scenario over here, but also with the, the Brexit countdown clock rapidly, rapidly ticking down. So difficult time for the government here. Very difficult. It's a bit concerning for us in Ireland as well, really, isn't it, Tony? Because in the State of the Union address by Ursula von der Leyen during the week, Brexit wasn't particularly featuring high on the agenda, which is kind of indicative of, of where the both the European Union and the current German presidency of the European Union rank this. But that's not terribly good for Ireland. If it's not high on the list of issues that are there to be dealt with, Ireland's concerns are not central at the moment. Well, I think I think that's partly deliberate, Colm. I think the EU has consciously decided not to get drawn into a full-scale blood and feathers scrap over this because, again, they don't want to be blamed for the thing falling apart and they know that they have to keep talking and they do want to get a free trade agreement. 
But I suppose since Brexit and especially since Ursula von der Leyen took over, the EU has been very keen to show that it is not completely consumed by Brexit, that they have other ambitions and aspirations in the world. And that was really why Ursula von der Leyen's speech didn't touch on Brexit until well into it. But again, what she said was fairly strong language that, you know, that, that the EU and UK had negotiated the withdrawal agreement and the Irish protocol word by word, line by line, and it cannot be unilaterally disapplied, disregarded or rejected, words to that effect. And, and that got a, a fairly hefty round of applause. It is the case that this is going to be a problem for Ireland if it goes badly wrong. I mean, I, I put the scenario to a senior Irish government official during the week and he said, well, hang on a second, you're jumping through too many hoops there. But just say that the attempt to get a free trade agreement falters, partly because of this, partly because of the trust issue, partly because the EU are going to be doubling down on having clear, legally binding dispute resolution mechanisms, you know, tacked on to any agreement. If that means the whole thing falters, the UK can't sign up to the state aid provisions, then the EU has to depend on the UK to still apply the Northern Ireland Protocol, to still apply checks and controls at points of entry into Larne and Belfast and, and, and so on. Because if they don't, then we get back into this horrible situation of, well, the checks and controls have to happen somewhere and the integrity of the single market is still a high value objective of the European Union. That's why they engaged in this whole Irish problem in the first place. And then you, you start to get people saying, well, where's the where are the checks and controls going to happen? Well, will they start having that conversation about the border and infrastructure and so on again? So, I mean, there's a certain pathway out of here that is very unpleasant for the Irish government. But overall, I think the EU is toning down its rhetoric and keeping this as a legal matter for the joint committee and for a potential infringement proceeding if those elements of the Northern Ireland, mm. of the in Internal Market Bill aren't removed. All of which depends on the successful conclusion of negotiations. Sean, we seem very far from that. So in terms of the set pieces of calming down some of the mood next week, what's on the agenda and is it likely to inflame or calm passions? Well, Monday is, is we've got this internal market bill back in the House of Commons. The whole House uh, is acting as a committee for another two days of debate on this. Monday is the uh, big day because that's the day when those controversial clauses, 42 to 45, the so-called lawbreaker clauses, come up for discussion in the House. Now, this deal that Boris Johnson is supposed to have cooked up with the backbenchers, with Sir Bob Neill, who had originally come up with this idea of having a fallback position whereby the House of Parliament would have a final vote on whether they break the law or not. That deal seems to have been put together. Um, the Prime Minister, there was a very rare sighting of him in the Commons Tea Room on Wednesday after Prime Minister's question time before he went on to that liaison committee. So he was working the room, talking to the backbenchers, trying to get people on side for this. Deal seems to have been done. So it looks likely that the government won't face a defeat in the House. It was, you know, with such a huge majority, plus the support of the DUP on this issue, they'd need about 50 rebels to uh, defeat the government on this. It seems he will get it through. And so that is the kind of set piece action for next week. It mm -hmm. leaves the revolver well and truly on the table and see how the, the negotiations then with Brussels go and see if Barnier and Frost can start to crack any deals. But again, I'm just not seeing any signs of 
political movements that might make it easier for the negotiating teams to actually get on and do the job that they need to do. Because this internal markets bill, it seems to have been pretty ineptly handled. The Brandon Lewis revelation went down like the proverbial lead balloon. The RAB trip to Washington really didn't work out at all and has probably made things worse. So the government are kind of on the back foot and they don't seem to be pushing this issue at home either to the public. It's, I don't think, getting that much traction as an idea that somehow the United Kingdom is threatened by a blockade of the EU. I just don't see it catching on and they're not really doubling down on the attacks because it is proving so problematic for them internationally. And they're quite unpopular at the moment because of the COVID testing crisis, which is what people care about here in the UK right now, rather than any Brexit issues. Uh, Even Nigel Farage's attempts to whip up fear over people coming across the channel in rubber dinghies isn't really getting that much traction either. Uh, It's COVID first uh, and foremost in people's minds. Right, Tony, for the people on the other side of that table regarding the metaphorical revolver with grave distaste, what do we see in the in the upcoming week? Well, I think, I mean, I'm not sure if people here would be content with the revolver being put in a waste paper bin. I think they want to get General Duchastelian out of retirement uh, and encase it in concrete. The EU is trying to, to keep this in a kind of a muffled place somewhere. There is a summit of EU leaders next week. It's going to be a physical summit. Leaders will be coming to Brussels and they had hoped to keep Brexit off the agenda because not much was happening in the trade negotiations. But uh, They wouldn't do that to we, you, Tony, would they? They wouldn't, no. I wouldn't I wouldn't stand for it. But um, I just got a text there from an EU official in the European Council who said that it's after a meeting between Charles Michel, the president of the European Council, and Michel Barnier this afternoon. It will be on the agenda, but only as an information point. So that means it's a, a very brief update from Michel Barnier to EU leaders they won't get into a big, uh, long-winded discussion of what the UK has done or hasn't done. They'll probably reaffirm their determination to keep talking in the trade talks, but keep that legal threat there. But then the EU will have to be fairly nimble in how we get into the final cliffhanger here, because as I was saying earlier, if we do get into late October and there's a, a final two weeks of intense tunnel-like negotiations. If the UK still haven't taken the revolver off the table by that point, how does the EU go ahead and sign a free trade agreement if it's within grasp, if that bill is still hanging there? So there will have to be some fairly clever connectivity between the bill being adopted and concluded and consent given by the European Parliament and the offending bill or parts of the bill taken off the table completely. Well, that's my lot from a bedroom in Kildare, Deputy Foreign Editor Colm O'Mungong. From me, Sean Whelan in Westminster. From me, Tony Connolly in Brussels. Thanks, as always, for listening.